Madam Clerk, on behalf of the Debate Republicans and vote. Democrats who have worked for a Debate decade in Massachusetts to bring health care to 97% of, of our people, the is out of I order. vote no. Senator will, may vote. The Senator is out of order. I'm Dan Diamond, this is Pulse Check, and that was Senator Elizabeth Warren speaking on the Senate floor at about 1.30 in the morning on Thursday, as Democrats repeatedly stood to defend the Affordable Care Act, even as chair, Senator Cory Gardner, tried to gavel them into silence for being out of order. Now, it was a remarkable scene, especially for those of us who covered the 2009-2010 health reform debate. Republicans have spent years saying that Democrats shoved the law down the throats of the American people. And here were Democrats powerless to stop what was going forward with ACA repeal now. Sarah Carlin Smith, my colleague who covered last night's Voterama, will join me to discuss what it actually means for the Obamacare repeal effort. We'll also talk about Trump's attack on pharma, which was applauded by some Democrats on Wednesday and which could tee up the second big healthcare fight of the year. Then after the break, Arthur Allen, Politico's e-health editor and also the author of Vaccine, the Controversial Story of Medicine's Greatest Lifesaver, will join me to talk about Trump's questions about vaccine safety. They've been quickly overshadowed, but I also think that could be one of the defining healthcare and public health stories of the whole year. Now, I'm talking to two of my colleagues. This was an emergency podcast that we pulled together given all of the healthcare news. But rest assured, if you like our one-on-one interviews with influencers, we'll be back with those next week. Already have several guests booked for that. And forgive my hoarse voice. It was a long night and an early morning. But if you like this podcast, you can email me at ddiamondpolitico.com with suggestions for who you'd like to hear next. Please rate us and review us. That's always helpful. And with that... Let's get to Sarah Carlin Smith. So the headline in Politico Pulse this morning, the road to Obamacare repeal has begun. What actually happened Wednesday night and I guess early Thursday morning? So the Senate, through a very long (laughs) process, reporters passed a budget resolution that kind of sets in motion process for them to do the reconciliation bill um, that will actually repeal Obamacare. So this just sort of lays out the rules and guidelines they'll follow. And as part of that process, they went through what is known as a voterama, which um, allows them to vote on a number of amendments, makes it harder for the Republican Party to, you know, to stop amendments from the minority that they don't want going to the floor. So um, Democrats forced the Republicans to vote on a lot of things um, that may come back to haunt them in campaign ads or things like that, but, you know, relate to core things that are in the ACA, like pre-existing conditions, um, should people under 26 be able to stay on their parents' plans, Medicaid expansion, um, a number of things unrelated to ACA, but that have been popular topics of the news lately, like drug pricing and lowering them. Let's let's put drug pricing on like a spinning plate and get back to that because that is your, your pet topic. Sure. So... Thinking about the point of last night's vote, some of it was symbolic. It was to pin Republicans down on these issues. We might now see ads saying ex-Republican senator voted against the popular pre-existing conditions provision. Correct. <laughs> but, but some of it was also tactical in that this budget resolution was needed to begin the process 
of moving forward on repeal of the ACA, a multi-multi-step process. Correct. Exactly. So it needed to be done. The House should probably vote on it tomorrow, is my understanding. And we're recording this on Thursday, so we're talking about Friday being the day that the House uh, takes up the budget. Correct. So it's tactical. It needs to happen. But most of the, because it's just a resolution, it's not a law. Um, The president's not going to sign it. This has all the amendments and everything else. They really only have symbolic function. Certainly nobody in the House is going to vote on all those amendments that the Senate put forward. But it does kind of, it's politics. It gets Republicans on the record saying no to things that Democrats view as key parts of Obamacare and health care reform. So here's the question I've gotten more than any question today, which is, if this was a symbolic vote, and if Republicans truly like things like the pre-existing coverage protection or the allowing uh, kids up to age 26 to get covered through their parents' plans, and if their votes weren't binding, why didn't Republicans support those provisions in this voterama to avoid getting pinned on some political campaign ad down the line? So my understanding is that the way a lot of these provisions work Moving forward, when they actually go to do the like repeal and replace, it would make it a little bit harder. So, like, say you're talking about pre-existing conditions, when they go to have a vote on that, they might need like a 60-vote threshold if they didn't want to have the pre-existing condition provision in there. So it would just lock them into things when they don't know what the replacement plan is looking like yet. So even though a lot of Republicans do probably want to see some of these provisions they voted against yesterday in the health reform without knowing every single compromise they're going to have to make and what they're going to be able to say yes to and what they're going to have to eliminate. I think it's hard for them to commit to that. And I should say, we are recording this as a quick hit news roundup podcast this week. An upcoming episode of Pulse Check, we're going to go deeper with some folks who have worked in Congress on what the path is to actually repeal and replace this law. Though I will say, we are now at the beginning of maybe a nine or 10 step process as an easy way of thinking about it. The Senate has passed the budget, that that is checked off. But looking ahead, the House still needs to pass this budget, then it's going to go to the floor of the House where, and the committees where they'll start drafting the repeal bill. That could take some time. They're going to be working on a potential replacement simultaneously. Two, the House is going to vote, then it goes back to the Senate. The Senate does a similar process potentially of kicking things around committees. Then once the Senate approves a bill, they have to be conferenced together. Eventually it goes to Donald Trump's desk. There is a lot that needs to happen between today, January 12th, and whenever this repeal bill and potentially replace bill too comes to pass. Oh yeah, it's going to be a very busy next few months, probably next year (laughs) for healthcare and You know, Congress is complicated. Um, There's a lot of steps involved in getting to an actual um, bill and policy for the American people. As of right now, Trump has said, I want this to be as close to simultaneous repeal and replace as possible. But I also want Tom Price, my HHS secretary, to be in seat when this happens. That blows up the plan of having this happen in the next couple of weeks which is in some ways good for Republicans. They needed that time to hash things out. But at the, same, uh, at the same time, the longer this drags, in some ways, the harder it starts to get for Republicans in that Democrats will be able to try and pick off a few at a time. We saw this back in 2009, 2010. 
Democrats came in with a lot of momentum, yes, we're going to do health reform, the longer it dragged on as senators and representatives went back and did town halls, as they were targeted by different constituencies, it became harder and harder to keep that coalition together politically. Let's move to one of the amendments that you were tracking very closely, and that was one that Bernie Sanders and Amy Klobuchar put forth on importing drugs from Canada. The measure fell 46-52. Were you surprised that so many Democrats, 13, ended up voting against it and 12 Republicans voted for it? I was a little bit surprised, but not shocked. Drug importation is a complicated policy that doesn't always follow party lines. For a number of reasons, FDA doesn't support it, and Democrats tend to support FDA when they can. Um, And there are valid safety issues about people accessing drugs from other countries that haven't been scrutinized by our regulatory authorities, maybe don't have English language labels <laughs> on them. But but Canada is not one of those risky countries, No, is Canada it? is maybe not to a certain degree, but... Unless there's something pers- about Canadians that I don't know. I mean, they seem suspiciously nice, so maybe they are, are <laughs> hiding something with their drug I think there would be less concern, perhaps, with Canada than other countries. And actually, they initially were going to vote on a bill that said Canada less other countries, and they only voted on a bill that mentioned Canada. But it just becomes complicated when you think about all the ways you could import drugs, especially when you mention individual people importing drugs, online pharmacies. You know, FDA goes in and inspects manufacturing plants where our drugs come from. They control, what, again, what's said on the label from it. And so I think there's a lot of people that do support it on or decide not to support it on the safety side. There are also a number of people I talked to this morning said some of the Democrats who voted no on that are up for re-election <laughs> next cycle and that they don't want to necessarily bother the drug industry. Let, let me list off those Democrats who voted against the measure. Uh, Bennett, Booker, Cantwell, Carper, Casey, Coons, Donnelly, Heinrich, Heitkamp, Menendez, Murray, Tester, and Warner. Do, as as a pharma reporter, do any of those names surprise you? Are any of them particularly close to the pharma industry? Senator Menendez is somebody who's um, from New Jersey. Is tends Bob to Menendez. be closer to yeah to the drug industry. Also, um, Cory Booker. Booker also voted for it. And again, anybody from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Senator Casey um, is going to have probably a bit trickier time navigating an issue like that. And I think it's because easy. Because the farm industry is, is located in like that mid-Atlantic pharma belt area. Yes, exactly. So I think that's a big part of the problem for some of these senators. Moving from the Congress to the administration, Donald Trump comes out and at his first press conference in months, begins by attacking pharma, saying that the industry is getting away with murder for its high drug prices. Biotech stocks plunged. The, the NASDAQ uh, biotech sector fell 3% almost immediately. And then in one of the most amazing moments of Voterama, Bernie Sanders comes out and says, look, I don't normally agree with Donald Trump, but he's right. What does this all mean for the pharma industry, where we have a president who appears committed to attacking the industry and Democrats like Sanders who might be gettable for some sort of legislation? The optics of that are just, they're 
horrible for the drug industry, especially because the markets are so sensitive to anything a president says, president-elect says. And I was talking to people, someone yesterday, and they said, yes, everyone talks about Donald Trump. He's sort of special. He doesn't communicate like a typical president. But guess what? He's still the president, and you still have to take everything he's going to say just as seriously as you took what Barack Obama said or George W. Bush said, and the markets are going to react. And and in some ways, maybe even more seriously, because not only does he make these pronouncements, he then stays on it publicly for days. He can tweet again and again at 6 a.m. in the morning on a story keeping pressure on an industry, fairly or not. And the color of that language, the passion of what he says, just really creates this dynamic that you just don't want. It's not that normal, like, measured speech. And if you are trying to find an issue that would have populist uh, resonance and, and get the anger of the country behind you, drug prices are, that that is like the safe hot button issue in healthcare. Sure. Almost everybody, regardless of political party, has said that's top of their list, drug price affordability in polls for over a year now. Politico does the poll with Harvard, and we found that drug prices are the top issue among American voters. Yeah. And so actually earlier today on Bloomberg um, television, Kellyanne Conway, Trump's, um, one of his senior advisors said that there's going to be a discussion of drug pricing and ACA repeal and replace that it just wouldn't be um, appropriate, a word sort of like that she said, to, to do a healthcare repeal and replace law without discussing drug pricing. So that's going to probably, again, send the next wave of chills to the drug industry because a day after Trump made this comment, they're following up, they're being consistent, they're going to address this. What what have your sources in the industry told you? I mean, the, it's not like pharma hasn't been under attack for the better part of a year and a half now. How new or different is this climate, given all of the political uh, political battles they've already been in? This is a pretty challenging one. I think Right now, they're scrambling to go to Republicans on the Hill and try and shore up their base. And Republicans in the Senate and House, and even a lot of Democrats have, can typically have a hard time going against the drug industry. So I think that's the thing to watch is, do, does Trump, he says he can, he, he, you know, like he's, you know, but can he actually persuade enough Republicans to get on board to do something on drug pricing. Well, that Kellyanne Conway comment is is interesting. And in a bit of political jujitsu, we know that Republicans essentially have the votes to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They've got them in the House. And in the Senate, all they need are 50 votes because Pence can break the tie. If they lose two Republicans, so be it. The issue has not been about the repeal vote as much as what happens next. And enough Republicans, half dozen Republicans have said, we are not committed to this idea of repealing the law. If there's nothing to replace it, we are not on board with repeal and delay. You, Jen Habercorn, you were on the podcast earlier this week. Jen made the point that Mitch McConnell, very good at cracking skulls, maybe could get those Republicans back in line. But either way, the, the repeal part seems to be the less hard part. It's can Republicans get enough votes together for either convincing everyone to delay or get the 60 votes to replace the law. Bringing in the drug price issue might be a way to pick off some Democrats who have wanted this. This is like their white whale. The Obama administration very much wanted to tackle drug costs before leaving office. And their big plan through CMS, the Medicare Part B demo, died on the vine. So this could be a way to really achieve some liberal goals. 
as hard as it will be to get any Democrats on board with replacing the Affordable Care Act. Exactly. I think that it's it's really hard to say how Democrats or even some of the more moderate Republicans that might be a little bit tricky to get support for the replace bill will vote without knowing, all the, again, all the other pieces of it. But there are definitely people like Susan Collins, who's a moderate Republican who often votes with Democrats on certain issues. She's been really big on drug pricing. A, something, Any kind of provision on drug pricing could help sweeten a deal and replace for her and other moderate Democrats. Again, Democrats may be up for re-election that care about drug pricing. So last question for me, Sarah. We we know who Trump wants to lead HHS, Tom Price. We know who he's tapped to lead CMS, Seema Verma. What about the government officials who would be running some sort of pharma, either uh, legislative effort or, or the ones who would be implementing his strategy? How much do we know about who Trump wants to tap for jobs like head of FDA, NIH? So we're starting to get more details about who he's considering for FDA. We just got a new candidate today, and I'm going to botch his name. Um, I may need your help. <laughs> so we can both botch it together? Yeah. We can um, also just tell people to look at your reporting. If, if, uh, if um, we can't pronounce his name, you can read Sarah Carlin Smith's reporting and but decide the pronunciation the two people Trump is meeting with today, one is Jim O'Neill, and we've heard his name before. He is an associate of Peter Thiel, whose name I may have also just botched. Um, a venture capitalist, one, yeah. um, not really a health guy per se, though he has worked with HHS in the past. And and O'Neill, when his name broke, some of the things that really got the healthcare industry aflutter, one, no clinical background, which would be a first uh, in ever or, or just in, in decades to run? I think when I looked this up a couple weeks ago, Maybe in the past 50 years, we haven't had an FDA commissioner who hasn't either been a medical doctor or a PhD in a science that was very closely related. And pretty much every, those people have been like veterinarians if they weren't medical doctors. And everyone has come from a background of leading a big major academic center, big um, public health agencies like Dr. Hamburg came from the New York public health, Hamburg, yeah. public health department. So... To have somebody in a role who's really been in kind of the business world most of his life, who's made comments about FDA drug approval saying you don't actually need to approve them based on whether they're effective, you just should just approve them based on whether they're safe. That's freaking people out. It actually, honestly, even freaks the drug industry out. Well, that that really is like the business idea of let's just get stuff to market and see how how it does. Like, let's get this product out there. And if it works well, great. And if it doesn't work, so be it. That might be okay with like a pair of jeans. It's very different with drugs that could affect someone's life and, and medical outcomes. So lots of questions and real concern over O'Neill as FDA head. So what about this new candidate? So his name, okay, and here we go, Balaji Surinasavan. <laughs> I'm very, I'm horrible. I need um, some help with that. But he's probably, he's pretty similar to O'Neill in that a lot of venture capital background. He has a little bit more science medical experience. He's comes from an engineering background. He's worked with some medical devices, um, a medical device that does genomic sequencing. So it's just probably slightly has more of an FDA-centric background than O'Neill, but not what you'd expect. He's also been all over Twitter making very um, strong comments in favor of deregulating FDA. He's kind of criticized FDA for being maybe a little bit too close to the big companies that FDA regulates, like 
big pharma, as some people call it, rather than quotes, yes, rather than like the little guys, maybe smaller companies that don't have the same power, not power, but the ability to go through a really rigorous regulatory process. He's mentioned um, that he believes companies have the right to like First Amendment right to communicate however they want about their product, which might seem not like such a big deal, but essentially FDA's power to protect consumers rests in the fact that they can tell a drug company, you can't say your drug is good for X or Y or your device can can cure Z unless you actually have the data. Without that, FDA doesn't really have a lot of legs to protect you from snake oil. It's interesting to me, Sarah, that the two candidates you mentioned, they very much come from the Peter Thiel school and Peter Thiel, an advisor to Trump who seems to be wielding an incredible amount of power behind the scenes in putting forth candidates. What about Scott Gottlieb, who was more the consensus pick of healthcare folks when they heard that his name had been advanced, a former Bush official, physician? Scott Gottlieb is definitely still in the mix, um, from my understanding. He's somebody who's knows Tom Price very well and certainly has an in through that front. I think the issue has been with Donald Trump and his picks is he's not always been very traditional <laughs> in making sure he gets sign-off from the other cabinet officials who will work with, you know, the lower-down um, political appointees. So, and Donald Trump is seen as sort of owing Peter Thiel a little bit for his help. So it's a question of, does he go with kind of wanting to do this guy a favor? Does he take into account Tom Price and maybe some of his other advisors' opinions a bit more and go with somebody who has had, Scott Gottlieb has had leadership experience um, with FDA, CMS, and a little bit more typical candidate for the job, although he um, has a number of financial conflicts of interest um, in terms of sitting on the board of numerous pharmaceutical companies that could create problems for him as well in a nomination process. Yes, I I can't imagine um, a person with financial conflicts of interest serving in this government. So thinking about (laughs) NIH, what about Francis Collins, the current director? There's been a lot of questions around whether he will stay or go, and he just met with Trump. Yeah, so he did yesterday, and my understanding is he's still in the mix. We thought for a while that um, he wasn't anymore, that Trump was definitely looking first to bring in someone new. Um, Andy Harris, a member of Congress who's also a physician and has been interested in the job, also met with Trump, too. So, and it's, we've also heard rumors that um, Patrick Xingxiang, who um, runs some... Nant Health, the, the billionaire doctor who owns part of a basketball team and part of the Chicago Tribune trunk company. So does a lot of oncology cancer research. Yeah, so he may um, be in the mix, too, or for some other senior advisory position. So... The one thing Francis Collins has going for him is Republicans, Democrats across the aisle in Congress love Francis Collins, and a number of very prominent Democrats on the House side have written to Trump telling him to keep Collins. Senator Lamar Alexander, who chairs the health, um, the health Committee in the Senate, has also indicated he'd like Collins to stay. So we'll see if Trump listens to <laughs> the party there. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and thanks for listening to Pulse Check today. Just a reminder, there is so much happening in healthcare, and as much as I love doing this podcast every week, or even two times a week like we're doing right now, you can get Pulse every day in your inbox. Just go to politico.com slash politicopulse to subscribe. We're covering the health reform debate in D.C., 
how the industry is reacting to it, and what the implications would be around the country. Politico Pulse, the email, it's not just a podcast. And I've seen it, and I had my children taken care of over a long period of time, over a two or three year period of time, same exact amount, but you take this little beautiful baby and you pump, I mean, it looks just like it's meant for a horse, not for a child. That was Donald Trump in a Republican debate in 2015, explaining why he has questions about vaccine safety. Questions that are getting new attention this week after news broke that Trump may name Robert F. Kennedy Jr., an environmentalist, but also a vaccine skeptic, to lead a new vaccine safety commission. And with that, let's get to Arthur Allen. It's 2016. The science is settled. How did we get here where the president-elect is openly raising questions about whether vaccines cause autism? Well, there is a small um, but persistent group of people who are looking for answers for why their kids or the kids of the other people they know are autistic. And... um, there aren't a lot of really good answers. Autism is basically probably a genetic disorder. There could be some environmental factors, um, but none have really been identified. Um, but there are people who are sure that autism is and other sort of childhood illnesses that seem to be increasing, um, everything from like asthma to diabetes, not only you know developmental delays are related to environmental, to this toxic universe we live in. And part of that toxic universe, according to some of these people, is vaccines. And they're just convinced. And they're just going to keep searching for until they get the answer they want. And that's been going on since about 1998. I mean, their anti-vaccine movement goes back to the 18th century. But this particular aspect of it. And that was jump-started by Andrew Wakefield. Right. The fraudulent British researcher who put forward a study suggesting right. a link. Right. Uh, Wakefield's idea was it was the MMR vaccine uh, because he noticed and that, that's measles, that, mumps, uh, sorry, rubella. measles, mumps, rubella. And that's because he was a gastroenterologist and he noticed that some of his patients um, who had GI problems also were autistic. And there's possibly a link in some small number of cases. His theory is very hard to follow, um, and it's been totally disproven, and he lied about what he was doing, and every paper he's ever published has been retracted. But he has backers, too, and he keeps going, and he met with Trump in August. So uh, this isn't going away, apparently. It it seems to me, Art, that the folks who believe that there is a link here, and again, no evidence at all, but they cling to whatever shred they can find Mm -hmm. that would seem to prove their point. And like with any conspiracy theory— when things are pushed down, then it's just evidence of an even broader media, scientific, right. elite community that is trying to hide the truth. Is, is there any way to fight against that? I would say that in the last five years, you could say that sort of the zeitgeist overall has moved from, hmm, I wonder if there's something wrong with these vaccines, to, well, these crazy anti-vaccines just shut up and get out of our face. They're, you know, running, they're threatening our kids with these terrible diseases. So there's that general thing, and there are a lot of pediatricians who refuse to see these people because they don't want, you know, whooping cough in their waiting rooms. These people being the anti-vaccine parents whose kids don't have the vaccine and could potentially be spreading it. 
But really what's disturbing, and I mean, I wrote a history of vaccination, and one thing you notice is that anti-vaccine beliefs track closely with lack of confidence in the government. And so we're in the middle of this, the perfect situation for these people to, you know, rise. And I know that a lot of the um, people who are big defenders of vaccines in, in these organizations that are concerned about this uh, really are, are worried about it becoming a partisan issue. I mean, if this becomes something where if you're, I mean, look, how long ago was it that Republicans really thought Russia was not something, was not a country you should trust, and now the polls show that kind of the opposite? If that happened with vaccines, it would be terrible. I mean, if you have, I, I, I see where you're going with that, which is if you have a public figure, potentially the president of the United States, raising questions, that on whatever frequency gets out to some percentage of the population. And even if science is a little bit different from politics, this has been an issue that's been very safe. Republicans and Democrats have, have not declared any sort of war on vaccines. If anything, this has been one of the pride of, uh, of our public health system. Other nations around the world envy what the United States has in terms of vaccination. Right. Um, yeah. And so it, that's very alarming. You really don't want it to turn that way. Um, and unfortunately, until I, I think it would be helpful to know why Trump, you know, has this belief. We we really don't know why. I, I was going to ask that. Do we know when it began? Is there anything that has been formally reported? There have been rumors like crazy online about why Trump might believe this, but do we actually know anything for sure? No, we know that he's been uh, active. He uh, has been at fundraisers for groups like Autism Speaks over the past decade, uh, roughly in the time since his son was born. I, I don't know if there's his any youngest connection. Son. His youngest son, Baron. Um, uh, but we don't know why. Yeah, we, we should walk back, I guess, from the speculation and stick to what has been reported, which right. has been this, this week. You have been all over the story. You've had several scoops. Mm. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the environmentalist being recruited, it seems, by Trump to lead a new vaccine safety commission. How did this come to pass? Apparently, at very early December, Trump's people reached out to him, and they've had a series of meetings, him with the transition team. It got far enough where they were talking about, you know, the uh, the purpose of the, or sort of the structure of the commission and who else is going to be on it, although we don't have other names. Um, and, and then basically it seemed like it was sealed with a handshake at this meeting they had Tuesday, although Trump sort of uh, pulled back and issued a statement sort of saying he was still deciding whether to have this commission. That's not the impression that uh, Kennedy came away with. And the letter that he sent a day later to his followers, uh, Kennedy, or rather, Kennedy's I'm sorry, this is, yeah. so a day later, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. sent a letter to um, his mates in the uh, Waterkeepers Alliance, which is, you know, an environmental group that fights for clean rivers, telling them he was going to step down for a year to lead this commission, um, probably. And he has, the letter makes clear, and also talking to a few other people, he's come under a huge amount of heat because, as you can imagine, this is a largely a liberal group. They're not real happy about him, you know, doing, you know, working with Trump, and they may or may not share his beliefs about vaccines either. And, and I just want to pull those threads together. So we heard first of this week, Trump was meeting with RFK Jr. RFK Jr. walks out, says, I'm going to leave this vaccine safety commission. 
Trump walks it back a few hours later. And, and we've seen this happen a lot where someone meets with Trump and is convinced that his or her policy priorities are now lined up mm-hmm. with the president-elect. And maybe, maybe Trump was more hospitable to the idea than actuality. But your reporting seems to indicate, no, this is not a quick thing coming together this week. It has been in the works for some time. Right. It wasn't something that just popped up at this meeting. It's been in the works for a while. Uh, You know, you could speculate about Trump wanting to pull the rug under from under a Kennedy. I'm sure that he has certain feelings about, you know, powerful Democratic families uh, uh, and the elite and so on. But who knows? Um, But he did say this. And um, what's sort of one other interesting point we should point out is that, you know, one of the leading candidates for FDA commissioner under Trump, someone who clearly, um, I think we've, we haven't, I'm not sure we've reported on it, but he's clearly a very strong candidate. Um, uh, Scott Gottlieb, you know, has written articles and debunking this whole vaccine thing. So he's clearly on the side of science on this issue. Um, And it'll be interesting what role, if any, that'll play in the decision about FDA. And to put a few more numbers around this, CDC, WHO, all all of the major groups have done research into the benefits of vaccines. But looking at a CDC study recently, for kids born in the United States between 1994 and 2013, vaccines prevented more than 300 million illnesses, lowered uh, societal costs by $1.4 trillion. So that's not just the upfront illness, but all of the follow-up care that might be necessary and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. So what what I find interesting, Art, because I think this is nonpartisan, maybe, maybe I can have a little bit more of an opinion on this than a policy issue, but we've heard Democrats the past few weeks try and make the argument about the Affordable Care Act that repealing it would make America sick again. Now, whether you think that slogan is accurate or not, I I think with vaccines, there's almost no question that if we start to see vaccine safety slip and fewer people get vaccinated, herd immunity goes down, we will see America getting sick again. There's no question about that. And the the clearest evidence for that is the measles outbreaks that we've seen in the last few years. Measles is a highly contagious disease. It only takes a few... um, uh, and, and also a, lar- a large part of our population that is older than, I forget, 50 or so, wasn't properly vaccinated against measles because the early vaccines weren't any good. And if you didn't get measles as a kid, you aren't immune to it. So it spreads like wildfire. And it's a very serious disease and one that would basically make an emergency room, you know, a place of great peril. Because if a kid comes into an emergency room with measles, all the, you know, cancer patients in there are, you know, at real severe risk of getting a a very serious disease that used to kill, you know, thousands of kids every year, left brain damage, you know, and and wasn't pleasant for the ones who just had the normal course of it and were in bed for, you know, several weeks. Last question. If Trump goes ahead and establishes this vaccine safety commission, and we talked about some of the downstream effects on mobilizing that community and raising broader questions, would that be comparable to anything that another recent president has done with respect to established science. I can't think of anything like that. It is worth mentioning that Don that Dan Burton, who was the head of the government, what was then the government reform committee in the 90s and early 2000s had a kind of a witch hunt against vaccines. Um, that 
had dozens and dozens of hearings, called people on the carpet from CDC, resulted in absolutely nothing. And that was after the Wakefield mess. Right. So there there was kind of more of a news peg. We are now 15 right. years out and years after all this has been debunked. Right. And all of the, the evidence, there were pieces of the evidence then that were still being studied, you could argue, although it was even clear then. But yeah, imagine you're, we're 15 years later, that much more research, tons of research, just Amazing. I mean, there are a few questions that have been answered better in science. Um, I think, you know, gravity may be slightly better established. But, and yet, here we are again. It's, it's kind of morbidly fascinating. And, and terrifying when you think about the possibility of an official government report being authored, the lead author being a government skept- uh, vaccine skeptic like RFK Jr., and what that would do to the community of folks or again, looking for any sign or signal that they have reason to doubt the efficiency, the efficacy of vaccines. Right. It's not going to help. Not going to help. That is all for Pulse Check today. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, for producing. You can find Pulse Check on your favorite podcast apps. And if you're listening, you probably already found it. So please recommend us to your friends, to your colleagues. We always appreciate the support. And you can email me, ddiamond at politico.com, for who you'd like to hear next. And we will be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.